with me. So stand and go to Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, uh, talking about many of our um, heroes in the Old Testament that walked faithfully with the Lord, also revealing, most importantly, God's faithfulness uh, to His people and to His uh, plans. Um, and then verse 12, or chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1, the author gives us a therefore. So now we've read about all these guys, this is what we should do with it. So follow along with me as we read chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, and that he willingly, for joy, went to the cross on our behalf. So, Lord, we praise you for Christ most of all. God, we also praise you for the cloud of witnesses that we have um, currently um, as we interact with fellow Christians, but also, Lord, the cloud of witnesses that we have throughout the history of your church. Um, the Puritans, Lord, are a group of people that um, we can admire and emulate to the degree that they point us to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray as we study today um, um, aspects of the Puritans and the Christian life, Lord, that it would propel us um, to live more faithfully under your authority. Pray that it would cause us, Lord, to desire to live lives of holiness and lives of devotion, um, Lord, for your glory and for our joy as well. So, Lord, we praise you and we commit this time to you and ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now you may be seated. All right, by way of introduction, we are in week five of our study of the Puritans. Uh, previous weeks, the first two weeks, we talked about a, um, we gave a, we didn't do anything, I, <laughs> I lectured, um, about a survey about the English Puritans in the 1500s and the 1600s, uh, so that made up two weeks of our study, and then we talked about particularly uh, the Puritans in the Bible, and then two weeks ago we talked about the Puritans and preaching, and this week we'll talk about the Puritans and the Christian life, and what the Puritans strive to do as faithful followers of Jesus. So that is our goal for today. I have three topics within this realm of the Puritans and the Christian life, and the three topics are a pilgrim mentality, um, the, the idea of the Puritan conscience, and sacrificial zeal. So, uh, what I want to paint for you is a picture of the Puritans with those categories. Lastly, on the last page, I put it on the last page and on your study notes, 
but I kept hitting enter, so it's not indented right at the top, but that's okay. I've given you some resources of where you can start reading the Puritans if you'd like to based on uh, some people that are greater experts of the Puritans than me, and we'll talk through those as well. So you can turn to the back page, but that's cheating. We have other points to get to before that. So the first point is the pilgrims lived lives of uh, evidencing a pilgrim mentality. So perhaps when I say the term pilgrim, you think of two things, I'm guessing. One, as Christians that are committed to good books, you're probably familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, and that is really a good allegory for the Christian life and for what um, the, the Puritans are trying to strive for in doing, living the Christian life, doing battle against the flesh and against the world and the devil. So that, that's a good picture, but you might also think of one other thing when I say pilgrim, and that's the pilgrims that settled America in 1620 when they founded the Massachusetts Bay, not the Massachusetts Bay Colony, at Plymouth Rock in 1620. Um, so that is probably something you think about too. So Let's, let's erase at least the pilgrims and the hats and the turkeys and the celebration with the Native Americans out of your mind when we talk about pilgrim mentality. But the idea of a pilgrim is it's somebody that's searching, right, for a, another land. They're living in one land, but they're going somewhere else. That's why the pilgrims are called that, because they left England first, and then went to Holland, and then came to the New World in America. And that's what Christian is doing in the pilgrim's progress. Um, so, what is this mentality like, this pilgrim mentality um, that the Puritans strove after in their Christian life? They saw themselves as pilgrims traveling through the world, much like Bunyan did in his work, The Pilgrim's Progress. They saw themselves as being in the world, but not of the world. They were God's image bearers. <clears throat> they believed it was their duty to manifest the gospel in every, every sphere of life and in every culture. Once again, I'm going to harp on this, harp on this, harp on this. Major um, Protestant Reformation idea is that you, as an individual Christian, can glorify God and not be a member of the Roman Catholic priesthood. The idea is that we can bring glory, soli deo gloria, all things for the glory of God. So the pilgrims are, we're living life to glorify God. Yet they were not of the world. So they lived in the world, but they're not of the world. Um, they felt it necessary to some degree to pull away from the world's culture. Um, they were concerned about the effects of worldliness. Um, they saw themselves, if you want to use a biblical term, as aliens. They were far off. This is not their home. Uh, Bunyan described the world as Vanity Fair. So you guys know that part. If those of you that have read Pilgrim's Progress, that's the part where Pilgrim is going through the world in Vanity Fair. Um, so Christians go through the world, but they must distance, distance themselves from it and its ungodly influences. But we do pass through it like Christian did in the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Joel Beakey says, The Puritans were heavenly visionaries who traveled through this world to a land they could see only in the Scriptures with the eyes of faith. Um, so how did the Christians live as pilgrims? Some of these themes that I'm bringing up today, we've talked about, because this is the identifiable marks 
of the Puritans that we're going to talk about. Number one, they had a biblical outlook. So they were people of the book, of the Scriptures. They believed that the Bible, I'm going to throw in some new things besides what I've said the last three weeks about the Bible and the Puritans because it kind of has been a recurring theme. But the Bible is the book where a loving father instructs his children. Um, And they believed they could rest in God's Word as the Word of truth for all of eternity. Um, John Cotton, in the late 1500s, told his congregation to feed upon the Word. Okay? Um, The preface to the Geneva Bible, so the Geneva Bible is the Bible that the Puritans, that the Puritans return to England after spending some time on the European continent during the reign of Bloody Mary, and they produce the Geneva Bible in English, and they bring it back to them, with them, to England when they are allowed to worship freely in England. The preface to the Geneva Bible says, the Bible is the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass where we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. So the elevation of the Bible uh, by the Puritans is important. Henry Smith, and you have this quote on there, says, We should set the word of God always before us like a rule, and believe nothing but that which it teacheth, love nothing but that which it prescribeth, and hate nothing but that which it forbiddeth, and do nothing that which it commandeth. If you got lost in the THs, that's okay. But um, the Bible is central in revealing to us. So they had a biblical outlook. They also had a pietist outlook. Okay, I'm not going there. Never mind. There is a whole movement of pietism in church history that kind of grows out of the Reformation in Germany. We're not talking about that type of pietism, okay? So there's a, there's a formal pietism that exists. Uh, but oft, oft, oftentimes when we heard the word, word piety or pious today, it's, it's a negative thing, right? It usually... It's kind of like the term Puritan in itself, right? Um, We talked about in the first week that Puritan kind of has this, oh, uh, legalistic view um, or a view towards uh, emphasis on law. Piety kind of has a bad rap too. Um, But so does holiness. And that's pretty much what piety is, is living a life of holiness. Um, um, But oftentimes, as a negative term, it's kind of like holier than thou, if someone's considered to be pious. There are many popes, by the, na- by the way, named Pius throughout the church, the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, the goal, uh, piety to the Puritans means living in the fear of God or living a godly life. Uh, the goal of all theology for the Puritans uh, was to align the human will with the will of the holy God. And that was first talked about by William Ames, who's kind of the father of the Puritans in the 1500s. One author listed 17 means in which the Puritans promoted piety. I'm not going to give you all 17, but here's like 12. So write fast. Word-focused preaching. Talked about that before. Reading slash studying the Bible. I'm going to go slowly here. Meditation. Prayer. Communing with the saints. Fellowship. Repentance. Singing hymns and psalms, 
making diligent use of the Lord's Supper, obedience to God's commands, catechisms, family worship, keeping the Sabbath, and journaling. I think I did like 14 just then. I just left out a couple others. Um, But these are means, and these are spiritual disciplines for the most part. That's how you um, promote holiness and holy living. So that is sanctification in our lives, those things that God calls us to by the power of His Spirit to grow in godliness. I love this definition. It's on your handout. So there's some some words I want to emphasize in this definition. Piety means experiencing sanctification as a divine, gracious work of renewal. All right, that's, that's, that's God, God's grace causing this, um, expressed in repentance and righteousness. So repentance, um, admitting and turning away from sin, righteousness, living a holy life which progresses through conflict. Okay, piety's not easy. It's going to be difficult. Um, progressing through conflict and adversity in a Christ-like manner for all of a believer's life. And in the future, glory, anticipating the day when piety will be perfected in eternal sanctification in heaven. Just love that. This is, that, that is by the way, that is Joel Beakey's definition in his theology of the Puritans. I don't think I gave you the name. Who, who said that? Um, so they had a biblical outlook and a piet, pietist outlook, but also a churchly outlook. So emphasis on being involved in the local church. Uh, but when they talked about the local church, they meant the fellowship of the believers. And uh, the, relation, the church is the relationship between God and His people, and then God's people with each other. Um, the church building, they didn't even call it the church. They called it the meeting house So, because they wanted to make sure that church is the spiritual aspect of our union with Christ and with each other. Um, so they wanted to divert the attention away from the physical place um, to where people were meeting and worshiping God. They also believed, and this is groundbreaking, at the time in England, involuntary church membership. Remember the first couple of weeks we kept talking about as a new king or a new queen came on the throne, they'd all pass bills called the Act of Un- Two Acts, they all would do for the most part. One was the Act of Supremacy, saying that the king or queen, whichever ruling monarch of the time, was supreme over the church. They were over the church and the state. So that's an Act of Supremacy. They also would pass... Um, an act of uniformity, which would uniform, everything would be the same, in worship inside the Church of England or the Anglican Church. So, the Puritans are opposed to, hey, just because you live in this town or in this country, you have to be a member of the Church of England. Now, I say that generally. There are some Puritans that maintain a fidelity to the Church of England, um, but generally they, they want people... They believe in the invisible church of God over and against the visible church within a building, okay? So just because there's a building and they're doing uh, worship according to the Book of Common Prayer, that's not necessarily in their book a true church, okay? So a churchly outlook. They were very concerned, and this is, one of, this is why they're Puritans, called Puritans, very concerned with a proper biblical worship that was done in the church gathering. So what that means is 
They wanted to do certain things in the worship service, and they didn't want to do things that were, they, that were ads to Scripture. So things like uh, the priest wearing certain clothing, or um, kneeling, or crossing, or um, the priest giving the person the sacrament as they took it, a variety of things like that. They saw those as extras and add-ons to worship, and they wanted to be biblical in their worship. They wanted to purge the English church of the excess rituals in worship. They believed in the regulative principle, so the only things that should be allowed in a worship service are those elements that the Bible describes and outlines. That's a very uh, Presbyterian view. That is the Presbyterian view of worship. Um, so that was the third thing, churchly outlook. The fourth is a warfaring outlook. By the way, warfaring is not a word according to Microsoft Word. So <laughs> it works apparently for it to be published though. So so a warfaring outlook, outlook, and this is the idea that there is a battle that's waging in the believer's soul. It's the tension and conflict in the inner life, and that is spiritual warfare. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Like, why do I do what I do, O wretched man that I am? I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Um, so there, a battle exists between our new nature and the old one, and we still battle against sin. James Usher said that spiritual warfare is the daily exercise of our spiritual strength and armor against all adversaries with assured confidence. That, that, that is hopeful right there, by the way. Just read that again. Against all adversaries with assured confidence of victory. For the state of the faithfulness in this life is such that they are sure in Christ and yet fight against sin. Um, the Puritans referred to the old nature as a volcano. Oftentimes, it would lay dormant and then explode within us. Uh, yet they said that war with sin is a healthy sign. because You're battling it. You're fighting against the temptations that rise within you. And there was one solution to win the battle, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Christ has won the ultimate battle on our behalf. And in his strength, the Puritan said, and the Bible says, we fight a winning battle. We fight by looking to Jesus and using the armor of his provision to move through this world. So that's the warfaring outlook. Fifthly, this is how they lived as pilgrims in this world. They lived lives of method or methodical, had a methodical outlook. And this goes against the culture of evangelical Christianity. Um, the idea of not necessarily having a plan for spiritual disciplines, um, almost like if you have a plan, you're legalistic and pious, and you're not really, uh, you know, you're not really following your heart per se. Uh, that the, the Puritans were methodical in how they practiced their spiritual disciplines. Um, Oftentimes, people compare the Puritans to the monks of the uh, early, or the late ancient church in the Middle Ages. Um, monks in the sense that they, they, they had methods for reading the Bible and, to, and for praying, yet different from monks because they weren't stuck in a cloister somewhere, hiding out and not in society. 
Um, They stressed order, planning, method, and wise use of time. Um, This was convicting to me, by the way. Um, I I could do a lot better at planning um, uh, what I'm doing to grow in godliness. But I plan for a lot of things, by the way. And I, I fashion myself a really good planner and a good at doing certain things. But interesting that I don't sometimes use the same energies and passions around my love for the Lord. So maybe that is the same for you. Because many of you I know are gifted at administration and planning. Um, One of the books that was important at that time was Lewis Bailey's book in the 1600s, and it was called The Practice of Piety, Directing a Christian Walk That He May Please God. And in that, he kind of gave instructions, like, hey, here's how you can live the Christian life. You wake up, you do this, and you go throughout the day, and you do this, and you close with this. And he wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages on that, the methods of the Puritans. Um, Lastly, the last point on the pilgrim uh, mindset of the Puritans is a two-worldly outlook. Um, So they obviously had to have some emphasis on this world, because they lived in this world, right? Can't be so heavenly-minded that, what is that phrase? No earthly good, right? Yeah, they're definitely earthly good. Um, Richard Baxter wrote a book. This is his book, though. Is this still, the idea is living in this world with a hope towards heaven. And heaven lasts for eternity. Richard's ba- Richard Baxter's book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, is a key work regarding this. He, that is a sum total of 800 pages about how the Christian lives in this life in light of eternity. Heaven was in the eye of the Puritan the whole time they were on earth. They believed that the joy of heaven would make up for any losses, crosses, strains, and pains that the believer endured on earth. Um, They sought to be faithful and fruitful on earth, but their hope of heaven was ever before them. And that's the pursuit that... Uh, Christian is pursuing in the pilgrim's progress. Okay, that's the pilgrim aspect, the pilgrim mentality of the Christian life for the Puritans. I'm going to take a breath and a sip of coffee. Um, The next thing, which, yeah, I'm not doing this topic justice. let's, Let's just admit that right now. But you guys can take this study up on your own at some point, and that's the idea of the Puritan conscience. Um, As an introductory thought before I get into this, the Puritans believe that man's conscience must be aligned for the Christian with the Word of God. God's Word instructs our consciences, and then we live in subjection to God's Word via our consciences. Okay, there's a lot of words when we think of conscience. We think of like other states and psychological stuff that's come to play here. This is all before the modern psychological movement, so let's just throw all that out there for right now. Just understand that. This, that's, it's, the Puritans aren't dialoguing like we're dialoguing with a lot of other uh, trends in philosophy, um, so got to remember that as you, as you think of these terms. Um, several works that were written, and just because I love highlighting really long uh, titles for you guys, William Perkins wrote a discourse of conscience where is set down the nature, properties, and differences thereof, as also the way to get and keep a good conscience. A real page turner. 
William Finner wrote, The Soul's Looking Glass. Just thinks of Alice in Wonderland or something. The Soul's Looking Glass, um, lively representing its estate before God, with a treatise on conscience, wherein the definitions and distinctions thereof are unfolded and several cases resolved. There are supposed to be two L's and several, just so you all know. Um, this is a major topic for the Puritans, and it's the conscience that causes many of the Puritans to eventually break away from um, the Anglican church. All right, so first, let's talk about the nature of the conscience. Um, everyone has one, first thing. Everyone has a conscience. Uh, William Ames says that a man's judgment, the conscience is man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God. They believed that the conscience for man is God's deputy or vice regent within us. Uh, this one's kind of funny. God's spy in our bosoms. God's sergeant that he uses to arrest the sinner. And the Puritans taught that the conscience is a kind of spiritual nervous system using guilt to inform us that something is wrong and needs correction. Uh, failing to heed these warnings can lead to the hardening or searing of the conscience, which will lead to destruction. However, man is fallen and sinful, and part of man's fallenness and sinfulness is his conscience. So man's conscience is corrupt. It's been severely affected by the fall. Unbelievers live with an evil conscience because they themselves are not at peace with God, or because they settle for a lifestyle in which they are not at peace with God. So they're either not at peace or living like they're not at peace. Um, the Puritans actually identified several names for evil consciences. When was the last time you thought about evil consciences? I'm going to say never for me. Um, one, the first one was a doubting or trembling conscience. Now that I think about some of these, sometimes they, are, they rise up within me. A moralist conscience, scrupulous conscience, that's a conscience that worries about everybody else, not me. An erring conscience, a drowsy or sleepy conscience, that's a, that's a conscience that needs to be awakened, or a seared conscience, which is very hard-hearted very hard-hearted to the things of the Lord. Yet there's hope for those of us that might have those consciences or been identified in a previous life with those consciences. There's the restoration of the conscience. conscience. Um, for the believer, the conscience is redeemed through the gospel. And this is how it's done. Um, five ways that the conscience is restored, according to the Puritans. Number one, it is awakened by preaching. Well, that's how the gospel comes to everyone, through the word being proclaimed, okay? Uh, whether it's someone preaching to you or someone talking to you about God and the gospel. It's also the conscience is informed by Scripture. So the conscience needs to morph to align to God's will, and that's conscience. Um, thirdly, it's healed by the gospel, through the work of the Spirit, the conscience lays hold of the gospel by faith in Christ 
Grinnell says, the conscience is like a stiff lock. Even if the key of God's promise fits it perfectly, it takes the strong hand of the Holy Spirit to turn the key, to unlock the conscience and quiet and fully satisfy the soul. If you just want to read Puritan quotes, we could do it all day, and you would be blessed by it. Um, A good conscience sees Christ as the grounds for our peaceful conscience, so always appealing to the Christ work in the gospel. But the conscience, a restored conscience is also exercised by self-examination. I would probably guess that the Puritans are better examining themselves than all of us, definitely than me. But they ask themselves questions, whether to know they were truly walking in obedience to God and His Word. The seriousness with which these people treated their walk is one to emulate. Um, Yet they also had active consciences. They acted out of knowledge of God's Word. Um, They wanted to promote scriptural obedience and liberty rather than legalism or carelessness about sin. They're active. So a lot of this, this, I might be painting a picture of really kind of overt introspection, uh, too concerned about everything that's going on. But the Christ-centeredness and the emphasis on the gospel in the Puritans is one that we need to emulate as well. Um, but they're always thinking and considering these things. Um, not perfectly, by the way. We have, we have their testimony and their writings, but they're encouraging people um, to pursue godliness and giving them these methods and to understand where, um, where their hope lies and where their strength lies. So, let me not paint a picture of the Puritans to this really high standard that we cannot attain. Um, by the grace of God, we can grow in godliness and holiness and faithfulness as they did, and they did it imperfectly as well. So, how about that for a little caveat? Um, but the seriousness of the Puritans is intimidating, and the world kind of criticizes the Puritans because they are so serious about holy living. Well, that's an affront to a sinful world. Um, so, that's a big thing. However, the next point is the third one, which is uh, godly or sacrificial zeal. So, the Puritans live zealous lives for God. So, if your only character, characterization that you hang a hook on about the Puritans is Arthur Dimsdale in the Scarlet Letter, this rejects that idea. And by the way, that was written, I think, 100 100 years after the Puritans in America had major influence. Um, But if that's your idea, um, give it up. These were passionate people, uh, excited about the glory of God and growing in holiness. Uh, So what is zeal? All right, so when you think of zeal, you think of zealot. There's zealots in the New Testament, right? That's one of the groups of people. Um, So, zealots, so usually we think of them as very radical, um, fanatical. Um, I'm trying to think of other terms off the... Anyway, that's pretty good, right? Um, Probably unhinged, probably not tied to something uh, very uh, concrete, but they had godly zeal. So, what is zeal? Reynolds says this, zeal is an earnest desire and concern for all things 
pertaining to the glory of God and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus among men. So passion for God's glory. Fenner says, zeal is the fire of the soul. Every man and woman in the world is set on fire for heaven or for hell. Zeal is the running of the soul. If thou not be zealous for God, thou runnest away after the things of the world. Um, and it's the idea of zeal is the fuel that fuels, the fuel that flames our affections. So we have affections for things, but it's zeal that helps us grow in those things. So our, our, the thing that we want is to become more zealous of the things of the Lord. And the Puritans help point us in that direction. Um, and this... This comes about in our lives by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit through His Word. Uh, the, the Puritans desired to live lives of holy zeal. And they did that through uh, several ways. I'm just going to give you these phrases for that's all I wrote about, was just the phrases. Uh, the Puritans desired to live lives of holy zeal by being one, God centered, um, biblical. This is that recurring theme. Self-reforming, and that is, that's growth, that's sanctification, that's growing in godliness. Having your conscience um, realign with God's Word. Um, their zeal was active. They did things. They just weren't monks in the cloister. They were out doing things and promoting the gospel. They lived lives of consistency, um, not mountain peaks to valleys, but lives of consistency, and their methods helped them to do that. Um, and this one is a surprising one. They lived lives that were full of sweetness and gentleness. Um, I'm sure there's some that lacked humility, just like there's some of us that lack humility oftentimes, right? Um, but if, if, if you're characterized by sweet, being sweet and gentle, that's a gracious person. That's the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in your Christian life. Um, so someone that's zealous, sometimes you think that zealot is just going to do what he's going to do because he's passionate about that. But there should be a gentleness by how we do those things. And we should be marked by the characteristics of the Holy Spirit um, and I think that's a lesson. These are, these are um, very Reformed, very Calvinistic people. They believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, um, but they were marked by sweetness and gentleness. Um, I can oftentimes, you know, there's a, a belief that um, the Reformed view of salvation um, creates a puff-upness a puff, puff of people, um, or uh, an arrogance or a pride, but it should drive us to humility. Um, and I think that is, um, oftentimes that implicates young men, I think, <laughs> who get passionate and zealous about good theology. Um, I'm, I'm speaking from experience, wishing I had reacted differently when I learned these things um, as a younger person. Um, but we should be characterized by sweetness and gentleness. How did they cultivate zealous lives for God? We probably all could name these things, uh, but these are the disciplines 
of a godly life, prayer, uh, reading and studying the Bible, faithful church attendance, fellowship with other believers. I love this quote by Baxter at this point. I have, you have it on your handout about the emphasis of fellowship with other believers. He says in his instruction to, um, in one of his books, live among warm and serious Christians, especially as to your intimate familiarity. There is a very great power in the zeal of one to kindle zeal in others, as there is in fire to kindle fire. Serious, hardy, diligent Christians are excellent helps to make us serious and diligent. He that traveleth with speedy travelers will be willing to keep pace with them. So find people um, and emulate them as they submit and are humble to Christ. And fifthly, they, how they cultivated zealous lives was through repentance and resistance to sin. Um, lived holy, zealous lives for the glory of God. Passionate people. So that's our third point on the Christian life. I'm going to take another sip of coffee while you turn your page to the back page. All right. Excellent resource that, um, that if you are really interested in the Puritans, is a book by Joel Beakey. It's called Meet the Puritans, and it has roughly 200 biographical sketches of Puritans. So if you're like, oh, is that guy a Puritan? And, and it's not just the English Puritans. It's those in the Scottish people and the, and the American Puritans as well. But if you're like, oh, who's that? You can read about their life, um, but it also gives you a guide to some of their works. So you're like, oh, I, I really want to read something by Bunyan that's not Pilgrim's Progress. It'll give you some resources that you might want to read. So Meet the Puritans by Joel Beakey. Um, in that work, in his introduction, he suggests these works, if you have not read the Puritans, to be your launching point. So, these are his beliefs. One is Heaven Taken by Storm by Thomas Watson, uh, The Fear of God by Bunyan, Keeping the Heart, Mike, Flavel, Flavel, thank you, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks, if you care, that's what I'm going to read. Glorious Freedom by Richard Sibbs. And then he says, after you've conquered those books, you should go to Owen, Thomas Goodwin, and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we're going to talk about Owen in two weeks, but I think Owen is a very difficult read. So you kind of need to prime the pump a little bit with some of these other guys. Um, I know some of you guys have profited from Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That's what Tim Challies suggests to begin with. He also suggests Precious Remedies as well. So that's two for Precious Remedies. And also Richard Sibbs's The Bruised Reed. Um, so that's about suffering. Um, so that is where, just if you want to know where to get started, I mean, there are hundreds upon hundreds of published works, probably just recently published in the last 60 years, um, republished by the Puritans. So that's ho hopefully a good resource for you guys. Um, I am done, and it is 945. <laughs> that's what happens when you start on time. How about that? So enjoy some time to fellowship one with another. If someone could find me a bulletin, after I pray, I will give announcements. 
Thank you, Timothy. That's, you are someone. <laughs> More than someone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you uh, just for the opportunity to be in your house and to gather together. Oh, Lord, I pray for as uh, we interact with each other today that we would be uh, like iron sharpening iron, as the Scripture says. Oh, Lord, I pray that our uh, conversations with each other um, in the next 15 to 20 minutes, uh, Lord, would spur us on to love and good deeds. Um, Lord, I pray that we would grow in our fellowship with each other. Lord, I pray also that we would be people that put our hope alone in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, not look to our own selves for our sanctification, but Lord, we would depend upon the work of Jesus through the Spirit in our lives. So Lord, we love you and we praise you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.